Morning, Bethel. All right, our scripture reading for this morning is Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 25. That's Acts 9, verses 1 to 25. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 917. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ." When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. That's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Morning, everyone. Good to see you all. We're going to be uh, continuing in our study through 2 Corinthians this morning, and we're going to be finishing up chapter 11. But before we turn there, I want you to flip back to uh, Proverbs 26, because uh, I want us to look at a couple verses uh, as we get started. So Proverbs 26, 
If you don't have a Bible or if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find it on page 548. So there's two verses that are back-to-back in Proverbs 26 that can really kind of catch your attention because it seems like it might be a contradiction. Um, But actually, there's deep wisdom here, and we're intended to kind of stop and say, what? What's going on here? So look at Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. I'm sorry, it's on 547. So answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Well, which one should I do? Not answer or answer. You need some wisdom to know how to do that, right? So it takes some skill, some wisdom to navigate between two hazards. So on the one side, you don't want to stoop to the level of an opponent and become a fool like they are, right? But on the other side, you don't want to fail to answer a foolish opponent and have them, or worse yet, others thinking that that fool is right and has won due to your silence, your failure to respond. That's kind of the dilemma that Paul's in. So as we look at 2 Corinthians 11, he's having to navigate between whether or not he should answer or not answer some fool's who have infiltrated the church in Corinth. Okay, so he was their spiritual father. You can turn back to uh, 2 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at chapter 11. Uh, We've been walking through the book of 2 Corinthians, and Pastor Tyler last week did a great job walking through the first half of this chapter, and we're going to be looking at verses 16 to 33. So Paul was the spiritual father of these folks, this young church in Corinth. He had preached the gospel there, saw people come to faith in Jesus. He had prayed for them and loved them and written to them and visited them and suffered in order to establish them in their faith. And now there's these itinerant preachers, these false apostles who've come in, and they're seeking to undermine Paul's authority and his credibility. So Paul would much rather defend just the name of Jesus He doesn't want to have to defend his own name. But in this case, if the Corinthians turn away from him and follow these false teachers, they're actually turning away from Jesus. So he's got to do something. He's got to say something. So these so-called super apostles, if you were here last week, you saw that designation. It's kind of a mocking um, designation. They think they're so great but really they're false apostles. If you see in verse 5, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these quote-unquote super apostles. So you can listen to Tyler's message if you missed that. Um, But they were something like the first century equivalent to health wealth preachers. (laughs) So nothing new under the sun. You know, televangelists today, it was present in the first century. And it was just as dangerous then 
or it's just as dangerous now as it was then. So these guys were externally impressive according to the values of first century Greco-Roman culture. They boasted of their pedigree. They boasted of visions and super spiritual experiences. They also commanded large sums of money for their oratory. Okay, so this is kind of a hallmark of Greco-Roman culture. Eloquent. They didn't have YouTube back then. Didn't have. So where are you going to get your entertainment? these speakers would come into town and everybody would flock and listen to them, okay? So they were the entertainers of the day and the better you were, the more money you could command. So they boasted of impressive resumes, um, which was typical of public leaders at the time, and they exercised their authority, attempting to do it over the Corinthian church in pretentious and domineering ways. And the problem was the Corinthians were letting them do this. It's gaining some traction. So Paul's concerned, and he's writing to address this. They were then turning to the Apostle Paul and criticizing his life and ministry, trying to undermine his authority and establish their own. So they said, you know, he's a poor, unskilled speaker, and judged by their standards, okay, he was, because he didn't use flattery, other manipulative rhetorical techniques to persuade people. Okay, do you remember back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2? He said, When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you, or I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It was an intentional decision. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I don't want to be so impressive as a speaker that you, you're actually following me. I want to point you to Jesus so that you're following him, so that you're trusting him. They also undermined him and, and criticized him because he said he suffers too much. And again, you can imagine first century health wealth preachers being critical of the Apostle Paul. How can a powerful, spirit-filled apostle living in victory suffer so much? You know, maybe this is the judgment of God. I mean, at least it was embarrassing and shameful. Isn't this beneath the dignity of a true apostle? So Paul's between a rock and a hard place. He doesn't want to defend himself, but he loves the Corinthians too much to just let this go without addressing it. So here he's wisely navigating between the rock and the hard place, and he is going to answer these fools according to their folly. So that in the eyes of the Corinthians, <laughs> these guys don't look wise, Okay because otherwise they'd be led astray. So let's dive in here, verses 16 to 18 first. Answer a fool according to his folly. Here's his answer. I repeat, let no one think me foolish. Again, we're, we're diving in here to the middle of the chapter. Tyler hit this last week, but look back at 11.1. He says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Please do bear with me. And then he goes on. So he's picking up that thought again. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. 
What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh or in a worldly way, I too will boast. So Paul is making the folly of the false apostles clear. He's turning the tables. He's saying to the Corinthians, these super apostles are fools. They're boasting just like the world does. And you guys are accepting them. So you know what? If that's what it takes to get you all to listen, (laughs) then accept me as I do a little boasting of my own, as I boast like a fool. So Paul decides to actually play their game, but he's only doing it in order to expose their game for what it is, to expose the folly of their ways. So David Garland, the commentator, writes, even when Paul descends to the level of his rivals in boasting, he transcends them. That's what he's doing. So he's going to show true wisdom through this temporary foray into folly. He's going to show the Corinthians true strength through boasting in his weaknesses. Okay, so he says to the Corinthians, you want boasting? Okay, I'll give it to you. Ready? If you're willing to listen to fools, then you know what? Let me be one. I'll be one for your sake. Here's why I'm going to do this. It's because I love you. Okay, so this is the second point. Why does he do this? For love's sake, verses 19 and 20. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. You see this? He's being sarcastic here. You gladly bear with these fools, these so-called super apostles, being so wise yourselves. Actually, you're foolish to accept these people. So you see, he's being sarcastic here. And then look at verse 20. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. So the Corinthians think they're wise. They think they're actually buying into the lie that they think Paul is foolish. And Paul is actually willing to engage in the folly of boasting because he loves them too much to let them be hoodwinked by these abusive false apostles. So Paul's engaging here in some sanctified sarcasm. And he's doing it to throw cold water in their faces and wake them up. He loves them enough to do whatever it takes to wake them up to reality. So do you see this description here of the treatment that the Corinthians are accepting? It's like codependency. So is spiritual codependency wise? Is it a sign of their wisdom that they're letting themselves be abused and exploited? So Paul's calling out the false apostles' leadership for what it is. It's not strong and impressive and wise. No, it's destructive and cruel and foolish. These guys are exploiting them. Their leadership is domineering and authoritarian and browbeating leadership. It's pretentious. It's prideful. It's abusive. And you know what? That was pretty much par for the course in the ancient world. Superiors normally treated inferiors that way. Meekness was viewed as weakness, okay? But that's not the way of the cross. That's not the way of Jesus. That's not Paul's way. Look at how he goes on in verse 21. I'm sorry, verse 20. To my shame, I must say we were too weak for that. (laughs) Do you hear the sarcasm? 
how ironic this is. It was Paul's Christ-like glory that he suffered so much for them. He's loving them so humbly and meekly. And these super apostles are calling it shameful. And the Corinthians are listening to this. So he brings some more sanctified sarcasm to splash that cold water of love in their face. He's saying, oh, so sorry I was too weak to abuse you. Shame on me. So the Corinthians were too conformed to this world. They needed to crucify their pride and be transformed by the power and the wisdom of the cross. They had it all backwards. So they needed to listen to their cruciform apostle who was following in the footsteps of the crucified Messiah. Do you remember, you know how Jesus talked about the difference between leadership in his kingdom and leadership in this world? Turn back to uh, Mark chapter 10. It's on page 846 in the uh, Pew Bible, if you're using that, or if you have an ESV, sometimes the page numbers are the same. So page 846, Mark chapter 10. So in verses 32 to 34, he's saying ahead of time to the disciples, hey, I am going to be delivered over, condemned to death, and I'm going to be crucified. And after three days, I'm going to rise. Look at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. We want to be in your cabinet. <laughs> like We want to be positions of power and, and authority. And they said to him, Grant to us one to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, We're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the nations, of the Gentiles, lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. If you're going to follow me, whoever would be great in my kingdom, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Christian leadership has to be different from the world's leadership. It's why Peter in 1 Peter 5 says to the elders, he says, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight in such a way where you're not domineering over the flock in your charge, under your, those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Or husbands in the home, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them, Colossians 3.19. Or masters, let's say employers, bosses, Ephesians 6.9. Masters, treat those under you with sincerity of heart and a good will and stop your threatening 
knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. So here's what we need to make plain that's clearly implied here. God doesn't approve of this kind of abusive leadership. It's not Christian leadership. That which characterizes these super apostles is condemned in the Bible. It's antithetical to the gospel of Jesus, to the person and the ways of our crucified Messiah. So those who follow Jesus must not lead like this, okay? Whether they be husbands or parents or bosses or spiritual leaders, okay? So we have to say it, right? A lot of abuse has taken place in homes and in churches in the name of Christ. And we also need to say that God doesn't condone one bit of it. Christ-like leadership does not resort to bullying, manipulation, flattery, guilt trips, power trip threatening, and other selfish tools and techniques. Abusiveness is actually weakness, not strength. It's a way to throw weight around to protect power. So if you lead this way, you're actually too weak and too easily threatened to empower and encourage people to think for themselves and contribute and thrive and flourish. You're too weak and selfish to love and serve. You're too committed to protecting your comfort and position. So you take the shortcut of coercive power to get your own way rather than taking the long road of humble, self-sacrificial, persevering discipleship to help others want to go God's way. That sometimes is hard. It takes a lot of time, and we just want to go the shortcut oftentimes. We can do it as parents. We can do it workplace. We can do it all kinds of places. So you can see why Paul is going to desperate lengths to get the Corinthians' attention. Why is he willing to boast like a fool? Why is he willing to play the game on the super apostles' turf? For love's sake, because he loved these Corinthians too much. Paul's willing to be a fool in order to win them back. So there's some sanctified sarcasm here, but this is no game. Their very souls are at stake. The Corinthians are being abused by these servants of Satan. Again, reference in the passage Tyler preached last week, disguised as servants of Christ. So we see this love that drives him again near the end of the chapter. Look down at verses 28 and 29. So we'll get to this list of sufferings, but look at 28 and 29. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? So we see Paul's love that's driving him here in the sense that his well-being is bound up in the well-being of his churches, of the people that he loves. If they are stable and growing, he's filled with joy. Like if you read Philippians or you read Thessalonians, you see statements like that. Now we really live because you're standing firm in your faith. But if they are unstable and drifting, Paul gets anxious and perplexed like Corinth, like Galatia in those letters. If their faith is weak and wobbly and they're vulnerable, he is, we could say, Weaken the knees, 
with concern for them. But this concern that he has, this loving concern, it's not just empathy and concern. It's also this divine jealousy and indignation if people that he cares for are being led astray. He burns with indignation if they're made to stumble and fall. Do you remember Jesus' words in Luke 17? Temptations are sh- to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So do you see Paul's love represented in his statements that who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? This is killing me because I love you so much. So do we have this kind of love for others? This isn't just a history lesson. (laughs) He's wanting the Corinthians to follow him. So we also should be asking ourselves, do we have this kind of love for others? Is our well-being wrapped up in, are we willing to let our well-being be wrapped up in the well-being of those God has placed in our lives to love? Our family members, our community group members, our fellow church members, and others. Remember the body metaphor in 1 Corinthians 12, when one member suffers, the other members suffer too. So do you suffer when another member suffers? Or do you just not want to be bothered? Do you avoid having to deal with the issues and the problems and the pain of those around you? Do you maybe not ask questions too much below the surface because you're afraid of what might come out and then you'd have to, like, do something about it? So maybe, you know... How are you doing? Great. How are you doing? You know, and just walk past each other. Maybe we want to keep it there. Because if we go any deeper, it might cost us something. Do you ever intentionally keep your distance so you won't have to deal with these issues? That's not the way of Jesus. Aren't you glad he didn't deal with you that way? (laughs) So this isn't what it means to follow Jesus. That's called trying to save your life. Okay, Jesus said, whoever wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But actually, that's a, that's a gospel invitation. <laughs> because you know what's killing us from the beginning, like from the garden, and each and every one of us? You know what really kills us? is our selfishness, (laughs) trying to live with ourselves at the center. That's what is so deadly. To die to that. To see that rather than just saying, fine, to hell with you all. God didn't do that. He didn't avoid our problems and issues and suffering and pain and mess. He came right down into it in Christ out of love He said, I'll make your mess mine. I'll make your problems mine. I'm going to live the life that you failed to live. I'm going to die on the cross for your sins in your place, paying the penalty so you can actually be made new 
You're not the center of the universe. It's actually slavery to try to live that way. You can be freed by dying to that way of life that's killing you. And you can take up your cross and follow me because whoever tries to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will find it. Come find your life. You'll know love. And we then can love because we've first been loved by Jesus. This is a good news invitation (laughs) to live this way. And there's grace and empowerment for it on the Calvary Road, following Jesus. So Jesus came to set us free from our slavery to self-centeredness and to set us free to love like Paul. Paul is showing us what cruciform life and ministry looks like. Obviously, we're not called to be apostolic church planners who suffer to the extent that Paul did. But if you want to follow Jesus, you can't save your life. You need to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus on the path of self-denying, self-sacrificial love. So Paul engages like this for love's sake, but also, point three, for the glory of Christ. Look at verse 30. If I must boast... I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Here's why I'm doing this, okay? Now, this anticipates where he's going in chapter 12, and so we won't spend too much time on it this week because we're going to look at it more next week, or actually in two weeks after the missions conference. But the, the simple point is this. Paul boasts in his weaknesses because the power of Christ is made perfect in his weakness. If he were to boast in his strengths, the Corinthians would be impressed with him. He would get the glory. He would get the accolades and the praise. But he doesn't deserve it, and he doesn't want it. Only Jesus deserves it, and he wants Jesus to get it. So when Paul is honest and open about his weaknesses, the power of Christ is put on display. Christ is glorified. People are pointed to the all-sufficiency of the grace and power of Jesus. That's the opposite of the super apostles. They want the spotlight on themselves. They want to build a following for themselves and exploit it to their own advantage. They want their kingdom to come and their names to be hallowed. Paul wants nothing to do with that, and neither should we. No self-promotion. He wants the Corinthians to have nothing to do with that and us to have nothing to do with that. He wants to crucify pride and promote Jesus. That's what we need to be about. So we're learning as we listen to the example of the Apostle Paul. We're learning what it looks like to follow Jesus. We're learning what it looks like to love like Jesus, to lead like Jesus. We're also learning about the kinds of leadership we should not follow. So if you see anything that smells of the super apostles here at Bethel, tell us. Love us enough to call it out so we can repent of it. If you move from here and look for a church somewhere else, look for a church led by spiritual leaders that follow in Paul's footsteps as he followed Christ. So let's get to Paul's actual boasting. We're going to go through this fairly quickly. So he knows he needs to answer these fools, but man, is he uncomfortable doing this. Um, (laughs) He had just said back in chapter 10, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. That's just branded on his soul. So he really doesn't like to have to do this. So listen to how he boasts. Point number four, verse 21. 
halfway in. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. (laughs) I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. Ah, I'm talking like a madman. So he could certainly hang with these so-called super apostles with their impressive resume, with their Jewish pedigree, but his intention is not for some tit-for-tat boasting competition. He's answering these fools according to their folly, but he is not going to stoop to their level. He's going to turn this boasting on its head to show how the cross crucifies our pride and magnifies the glory of Jesus. So he goes on to list his real apostolic credentials, his suffering, far from calling his authenticity, his credibility into question as an apostle, it actually affirms it. So here he goes. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless, countless beatings. How many does it take before you lose count? Far more imprisonments, with countless, I'm sorry, I, yep, okay, often near death, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. It's the most severe beating allowed by Scripture. And before I go any further, let me say the 2 Corinthians was written around 55, 56 A.D. Paul probably died in A.D. 64, 65. (laughs) There's a lot more suffering after this, folks. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. You can read Acts 14 and read about that in Lystra. Three times I was shipwrecked. And guess what? The shipwreck in Acts 27 is way after this. So he was shipwrecked at least four times. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. brothers. Can you say super apostles? Claiming to be servants of Christ. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, And apart from all that, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety. Yes, it's the same word as in Matthew 6. Don't be anxious about your life. But Paul's not anxious about his life, what he's going to eat and drink. He's anxious about their souls. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall and I'm not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And then these strange verses... The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. So, what is going on here? Okay, it's typical, Paul's day for, in the Roman Empire, for public figures like political, military, academic figures to list and boast of their achievements. Don Carson gives an example in his commentary. Augustus Caesar, for instance, wrote a eulogy in his own honor that listed his many accomplishments. Augustus is careful to include numbers. Once I did this, three times I did that, many times the other. It is highly probable that Paul himself had read Caesar's eulogy since it was inscribed on monuments in many of the provinces. Other lists of self-praise are common in the Greco-Roman world, displaying the prevailing attitudes towards self-promotion. Thus, Paul follows the accepted pattern, even to the point of using the numbers that were an important part of these self-eulogies, 
five times flogged, three times shipwrecked. Instead of talking about his exploits and his victories, Paul details his sufferings, loss, shame, and defeats. So, again, all to make the power of Christ really conspicuous in this life. Not for him to get the praise, but for Jesus to get the praise. So, have you ever noticed this escape over the wall thing at the end of this list? Um, Tyler read of it in Acts 9. That's why we read Acts 9 for the scripture reading. And, you know, you might have had that in Sunday school, and it could be like, you know, woohoo, what a, what a, adventurous escape, you know? How cool is that? But actually, to Paul, it would have felt like a shameful retreat, like weakness, maybe like cowardice even. So, you know, there's actually some really important cultural background underneath this. Um, It's weird. It seems kind of out of place. Why did he tack this on the end? Well, he does it on purpose. In Paul's day, Greco-Roman world, there was a military honor that was the equivalent of the Medal of Honor. The Medal of Honor in the United States is the highest military award you can receive, all branches of the military, okay? So the equivalent in the Roman Empire was called the Corona Muralis, which means the crown of the wall. So when a Roman army laid siege on a city, ladders were set against the wall, and you you climb up, and you're trying to get people in to conquer. You can imagine how many people die on the ladder because you know hot boiling liquid arrows you know it's like lord of the rings you know <laughs> on the top of the wall so the first guy that actually made it over the wall and survives you win the crown of the wall and it's the highest award honor that anyone could win so <laughs> In light of that background, with that background there, everybody would know about it. What does Paul cap his list off with? The opposite boast. Paul was let down the wall. He was the first one down the wall in a basket in retreat to escape. How weak and shameful. He doesn't hide it. This was the crucifying of Paul's pride. Saul the Pharisee had recently been converted on that road to Damascus. The risen Jesus had appeared to him, showed him how much he was going to suffer for his sake. So you can imagine how this man, who used to be the Pharisee of Pharisees, with such an impressive resume, like Philippians 3, held in honor by all, he's now a fugitive. But Paul learned to welcome it, that the power of Christ might be demonstrated through his weakness and his suffering. Paul was after a different crown, not the corona Muralis, he was after the Corona Christi, the crown of Christ. And that crown does not come before the cross. The cross is before the crown. So all of that to say, is this the path that we are on, brothers and sisters? Paul was writing these things for a reason. Corinthians needed to die to worldly measures of success and strength. We do too. Do you know how we can be so reticent to identify with someone held in public derision? It's natural to be proud of shows of wisdom and strength, you know, publicly accepted shows of wisdom and strength, and ashamed of folly and weakness. 
can feel embarrassed by association with those held in derision. So, you know, we might not have a one-to-one parallel here, but have you ever distanced yourself from identification with Jesus because of how he or his people are viewed as foolish and weak in our culture? Maybe that distance has just been the distance of silence. Paul, Paul would say to us, we all need to hear this, that that kind of shame is dangerous. We need to be shaped by the cross. This is a call to deny ourselves and take up our crosses and boldly follow Jesus. Not ashamed of our crucified Savior, not ashamed to be thought weak and foolish, because really, at the end of the day, and certainly at the end of time, it's going to be really clear that the cross is the power and the wisdom of God. So, I have three really quick application, additional application points. We'll, we'll blow through these quickly. Leadership. Paul is warning here of false leadership that seems strong. And he's commending true leadership that seems weak. There's a world of wisdom in here, okay? A call to look to Jesus, to look to Jesus, to look to Jesus to shape our leadership. It sounds like 2 Corinthians 1.24, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. 2 Corinthians 1.24. How about one quote here by Sam Storms? Let's be clear about one thing. True, godly, spirit-filled leaders don't exist for you to serve them. They exist to serve you. This was the precedent set by Jesus who said of himself that he came not to be served but to serve. Leaders aren't placed in the body of Christ so that their reputation, lifestyle, and bank account can increase at the expense of those who are led. Leaders lead so that those led might be ever more conformed to the image of Christ. And if such comes only at great cost to those in authority, so be it. For Jesus served his own by giving his life as a ransom for many. Second additional point here. Sixth point, but second Small application point, weakness. Are you, am I, quick to admit our weaknesses? Some of you may have been raised to never admit your weaknesses. Paul was taking a risk here. They were already using all the ammo they could find to undermine him. But he is not cool and detached and stoic in his leadership. He, his is the heart of this passionate father, not the aloof distance of a professor or some motivational speaker that blows in and out of town. So listen, weakness. Our day is filled with curated online images. Images of having it all together, of success and happiness. What pictures make it onto your Instagram feed. Only the strong, put-together, successful photos and moments. What would Paul's Instagram feed look like? Actually, I don't know. Anyway, we won't even go there. That's probably not helpful. Um, Because he wouldn't be taking pictures of his bruises. Isn't it amazing how much suffering he went through? He never asked any of his churches to, hey, well, at least that we have recorded 13 letters, hey, would you pray? Man, my back's killing me after all these beatings. 
He's saying, if, if you want to pray for me, could you pray that I'd be bold with the gospel and I'd make it clear as I ought to speak and not be afraid? Because that's way more important than, and this was before antibiotics. Back getting broken open and infections and whatever. Being honest about our weaknesses is different. I just want to qualify here quickly. It's different than glorifying mess and sin. Okay? Now, Paul is honest about his sin as well, like in Romans 7, but sometimes we can actually glorify failure and wallow in our mess and almost lionize it. I'm so authentic. Weakness and sin are not the same things in Paul's usage here, okay? But still, there's this refreshing humility and honesty that Paul's willing to risk here. This is the path of Christ-like humility and honesty, and Paul's exhorting us to follow. And then finally, as we prepare for the missions conference next weekend, what's our theme? Worth it? Question mark. Do you remember back in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, section on the resurrection, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. To read this list of sufferings, it's pretty obvious that Paul believed it was worth it. (laughs) That Jesus was worth it. This is the man who wrote in Philippians 3, but whatever gain I had, he had just listed his resume. I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, but don't feel sorry for me. That was me. I put that parenthesis in there. And count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So let's ask ourselves, brothers and sisters, let's be honest with ourselves. If someone looked at your life, looked at my life, would they conclude that knowing Christ is surpassingly valuable? Would they know how to answer that question from your life, from my life? Worth it? Is he worth it? Don't you want to live that way? Don't you want the value, the surpassing value of Christ to be magnified in your life? Well, let's pray that this text and our upcoming conference will help us live just that way, counting everything as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ as our Savior and our Lord. I'm going to pray here. It's 12. We love our child care volunteers, okay? So if you have kids out there, maybe, maybe while I'm praying, you could go get them, and then they can come in and sing this final song, which is very appropriate to this text, with us, and the child care workers will rise up and call you blessed, okay? So let's close in prayer. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy are you, Lord Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Lord Jesus, you are worthy, and I pray that you would give us grace to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of this glorious gospel of grace. 
pray that you would help us. Whatever gain we have, that we would count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, that we would count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as our Lord. Would you please help us to see so clearly the infinite worth of Christ so that we would in our joy go and sell all that we have to have him and to share him with everyone you put in our path. Lord, do it for your namesake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.